Welcome to STMS Talks, a podcast published by the academic journal Scandinavian Journal of Military Studies. In this episode, we're going to talk about popular resistance and whether the Ukraine war has changed our understanding of this phenomenon. Early on in the war, various news media reported on the formation of several Ukrainian guerrilla groups. Since then, groups such as the Popular Resistance of Ukraine and the Atesh Partisan Movement of Crimea have taken credit for several attacks on Russian soldiers and military infrastructures. And the partisans seem undeterred. In December 2023, the Atesh Movement published coordinates of Russian anti-aircraft installations and command posts. And several Russian servicemen have been reported killed within the last two months after local partisans handed out poisoned groceries and vodka in several Crimean cities. But is there anything novel about these forms of popular resistance? Do the guerrilla attacks have any effect on the outcome of the war? And what is the future of unconventional warfare? To answer these questions, we have invited one of the world's leading voices on irregular warfare and counterinsurgency, David Kilcullen. Back in 2019, David wrote one of the first articles in STMS on what he calls unconventional warfare. In the article, David offers an historical account of the different types of warfare outside the regular domain of state militaries. He begins with the stories of Lawrence of Arabia during the World War I and the World War II resistance movements, continues to explain how these strategies were updated during communist revolutionary warfare during the Cold War and ends with reflections on the current and future environment for resistance, what he calls liminal warfare. With this concept, he refers to a situation where actors can utilize new technologies to navigate more easily the gray zone between clandestine and overt activities. David spoke with several Ukrainian resistance leaders over the summer last year, and we have invited him to talk about the current state of popular resistance in Ukraine and partisan warfare more broadly. David is with us from Denver in Colorado. David, welcome to our podcast. Yeah, thanks for having, having me. Uh, you wrote your article in SGMS about the evolution of unconventional warfare, about a phenomenon which many might think about as both guerrilla warfare, partisan warfare, popular resistance. Some might even think about it as this hybrid thing that everybody is talking about. So what do you mean by unconventional warfare? What does it cover? So I'm using unconventional warfare in the doctrinal sense that it is used by the U.S. military. Um, some other militaries, like the Australian military, call it special warfare. Uh, but in U.S. parlance, it is defined as, <clears throat> I'm quoting here from their doctrine, um, activities conducted to enable a resistance movement or an insurgency to coerce, disrupt, or overthrow a government or occupying power by operating through or with an underground auxiliary and guerrilla force in a denied area. So there's a lot to unpack there, but essentially it is assistance by a special operations force or sometimes an intelligence agency to a local, as in an indigenous resistance movement. So the resistance movement is the heart of unconventional warfare because that's what's being assisted or enabled. Um, and we typically break resistance movements doctrinally down into three components, the underground, the auxiliary, and the guerrilla force. Often now we include an external component or an open 
political movement um, as part of that. We should talk about partisan warfare and popular resistance separately, I think, when we when we get to Ukraine. But I would just emphasize that for UW, the emphasis is on outside support to that local resistance movement. Mm, okay. Oh, that makes sense. So, so, but but if you just jump right into the U- Ukraine stuff, what what is what is going on there? What how does that popular resistance or or whatever it is that's that's going on there? What how does it look and yeah and and and, and how how does it relate to to the regular forces of of the national military in Ukraine? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think uh, when I wrote the article for SJMS in 2019. We had yet to see a very significant large-scale example of contemporary resistance warfare in Europe. We've now obviously seen that, particularly with um, uh, with Ukraine. So what happened there, if I could give a brief overview? Um, in February 2022, uh, the Russians rolled into significant chunks of the south and east of um, Ukraine and, and smaller parts of the north. And uh, there was chaos initially, the conventional... Uh, Ukrainian forces and the territorial defense forces in those particular areas were defeated or scattered. Um, And certainly in the cases where I've been able to speak to resistance leaders, what happened initially was there was a period of sort of vacuum where nobody was in charge. Uh, And so they stood up their own self-organized community governance groups, very similar if people are familiar with Syria, to what we saw with the Syrian governance councils during the revolution there. So they stood up to take charge of governance functions. When um, Russian occupation forces arrived a few weeks later, those governance groups were forced to go underground. And the subcommittees, you know, the sanitation committee, the medical committee, the police committee, became the basis for different functionalities within the resistance underground. Things like medical, intelligence, leadership, finance, communications, transportation, all that stuff grew out of these originally above-ground groups. Now, all of that I would call uh, popular resistance, or as the Ukrainians say, Narodny Sprotiv, um, and it targeted the occupation, right? So the Russian National Guard, Rosvadia, the separatist militias, collaborators, people that the civilians in the occupied area felt were oppressing them. So there are a lot of different groups, lots of different networks. They were what we call affinity groups rather than ideologically motivated. And they were driven by a desire to oppose and face down the occupier. Then later in the war, a few months later, the Ukrainian Special Operations Forces began to re-infiltrate these areas and make contact with the underground and with the Uh, resistance groups that were already there. I would, again, the Ukrainians would not call that popular resistance. They'd call it partisanska vina or partisan warfare. So military operations behind an adversary line uh, in concert with a resistance group. They had different priorities, right? They were targeting Russian military forces, bridges, command posts, supply dumps, airfields, uh, main supply routes, right? So often, often... quite differing priorities from the pre-existing local resistance groups. And there was a lot of negotiation needed between the government um, and the the popular uh, uprising that had already taken place. So let me pause there, but I think that's, that gives you, I think, a feel for the richness of what we've seen in 
Ukraine and how it doesn't necessarily differ from our doctrine, but it adds an enormous amount of detail that's not necessarily familiar to people who've only uh, read it. In- yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, it it seems definitely quite quite complex there. But 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 can you can you then add a bit more on on like the what has changed and evolved since the beginning? You know, yeah. So you you said a bit that it was kind of it needed to find its its find its feet in a sense. But mm. but but what about now? Like, yeah, two years after, is it is it still like that popular resistance or like the partisan? Like, what has where are we now after after two years? Are they are they still ready to? To, to do all this formal resistance and partisan warfare? So I'm going to have to be very limited in what I can say here about current operations. So forgive me for being a bit generic, but, um, you know, resistance to the occupation has spread. Uh, it is present now in virtually every area of Russian occupation, including some areas like Crimea, where uh, the Russians have been occupying since 2014. Um, the Russians have put a lot of effort into suppressing popular resistance and hunting down partisan warfare teams. Um, that has involved FSB, the Russian security service, who have been incredibly brutal to the population. And I would argue that that has, in fact, backfired for the Russians in some important ways. Um, and it's led to a sort of rebounding of the um uh, of the resistance. Some resistance groups broke cover during the counteroffensive in uh, the summer of 2023 to try to support the conventional maneuver of the Ukrainian forces. Many of those were damaged um, when the counteroffensive stalled, right, because they were caught in the open um, and the conventional force did not, in fact, um, uh, have the ability to support them. I would just say, though, that that's not in any way untypical, right, of what happens historically. Uh, We've seen, we saw that many times during the Second World War and other conflicts. I think the most important contributions, and I'll rank these in priority priority order now, of the resistance movement are firstly intelligence gathering and reporting. So intelligence about the enemy, but also reporting on conditions and what's happening and uh, where, where people's opinion sits and all that. The second is target development for conventional strikes. So spotting targets, locating them, giving um, uh, early warning to populations to to step aside, um, uh, bomb damage assessment or battle damage assessment after strikes. So support to conventional long-range strike. A third is um, support to special operations forces when they conduct deep operations. as well as some sabotage, some information warfare, and limited guerrilla activity. So I would say this is one where area where our doctrine doesn't necessarily reflect what we're seeing on the ground. The primary function of these resistance groups is not to conduct, you know, large-scale guerrilla warfare. That arguably is not really possible under these conditions. It's things like intelligence gathering and reporting, target development, sabotage, supporting. Um, special operations forces. So that's where it sits now. Um, and I don't think it's in any way been suppressed by the Russians, but I think it has evolved, as you said. So you, you're ranking all these different dimensions and loads of them have a quite traditional covert, covert kind of um, operation vibe to it. 
but but I was I was just wondering or in terms of the whole cyber warfare and you just you you mentioned briefly just information warfare as one dimension to it but but where is the cyber warfare in it uh is it is it there or and, and why not have, have i yeah so i would say um it's difficult to talk on a public uh, podcast about cyber but i think what we can say is that we're seeing something a bit different from what we might have expected we're not seeing standalone cyber warfare what we're seeing is cyber as an adjunct maneuver space to physical maneuver so cyber kinetic or info kinetic operations where you're seeing the use of cyber tools to achieve kinetic effects and vice versa plus use of kinetic action what we sometimes called uh in the past armed propaganda to achieve information or influence effects so uh, ambushing a russian column capturing that using video from a drone then exfiltrating that video to a Western media outlet to get that out onto the um, international social media, for example. Or even um, you would have seen, I think, the video feed from uh, drone boats that we used to attack the Russian Black Sea fleet. And of course, the video generated by those drone boats is really important as part of the uh, information effect that people are going for. Um, in terms of cyber itself, we're talking about a highly electronically connected environment, both in terms of terrestrial and space-based systems like Starlink. The Russians turned off the Ukrainian cell phone system in occupied areas in May of 2022. So that has made it harder. But I think digital exfiltration of information warfare materials, you know, video that debunks some of the disinformation that the Russians are putting forward or shows how conditions really are under occupation, those kinds of things. You're talking about large files that need to be exfilled using um, you know, wide bandwidth means, and that creates a vulnerability that an adversary can target when they see large-scale uploads of, um, of data. Uh, social media is a way around that, but there are other ways around it too, yeah. Do, do you have a sense of whether it's the same groups that are like navigate like same partisans resistance groups that are navigating the same space like or like navigating both spaces of more like traditional covert support and or is it like completely different what happens in cyberspace in terms of those kind of exfiltrations the kind of information warfare are they the same groups or are they kind of different fractions or how how do they kind of so there are multiple different factions and probably at least five umbrella groups of resistance and that's not a failing right that's actually a strength of the resistance because if you have one single organization um that is centrally controlled it's very easy for an adversary to roll up um there is an overlap between the physical and the cyber or the info space but obviously the specializations and skill sets are different so i'd say it's a if you were to draw a Venn diagram, you know there's a partial overlap, but it's it's a different uh, skill set. And you have multiple groups in the cyberspace, both inside and outside uh, Russia and Ukraine, inside and outside occupied territory. But the physical resistors are mostly, obviously, inside um, Russian occupied territory. Thanks. So I, I want to jump a bit and, and talk about something a bit different now. Um, so the United States, where you're sitting, um, and... Sitting here across the Atlantic, we are, we are quite uh, concerned of what is what is going on uh, 
also during the election in uh, in a year's time because what we saw in in January January 6 2021 with we saw a, a kind of form of popular resistance i would at, at least in a popular way of uh, talking about it can can such violent process be conceptualized within the framework of 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 what you work on in terms of unconventional warfare guerrilla warfare and are we likely to see more serious kind of developments if if trump is loses what is your assessment there yeah so um we need to be very apolitical and objective here and from an academic or analytical standpoint uh seen objectively the january 6th uh riot was the end point of about eight months of popular unrest and violence in the us in 2020 that started in in april in michigan and then spread across the whole country through the summer of 2020 and kind of culminated in that January 6th uh event at the capitol um most of that violence came from the left side of politics um and it left about 26 to 39 people dead depending on how you count it which would put it in the category of a of a small you know intrastate conflict if we use the upsala or um correlates of war type definitions that academics often use i'd also obviously did billions in in property damage um so i would say the framing that best fits what we saw academically in 2020 is something that amounted to a color revolution right not to take sides either way on the question of the legitimacy of the election outcome um but just to note that um there's very solid academic data suggesting that belief in a stolen election is one of the strongest known triggers for uh popular revolution and for those that want to look at that in more detail I'd, I'd recommend a article from comparative politics in 2005 by Philip Kuntz and Mark Richard Thompson um called stolen elections as revolutionary triggers where they go through about 200 years of history um and I mention that because the latest polling here in the US suggests that somewhere around 50 million Americans believe that the 2020 election was stolen so whether they're right or not the fact is that that's a, certainly enough um raw material if you wanted to to start an uprising or to um to continue that that color revolution that we saw in 2020 um i don't actually see trump losing as the likely trigger for mass unrest i would say trump winning would be a more likely trigger there are currently several legal efforts to imprison donald trump or ban him from running for office um and i'd say if those succeed so he doesn't even make it onto the ballot then we might see very significant public protests from the right um if those efforts fail and trump becomes the nominee then i think we'd see even more extensive public protests from the left um and indeed if he wins now obviously in a democracy peaceful protest perfectly fine it's when that shades into violence that it becomes of concern and i think another academically interesting element of this is that left wing and right wing violence in the US are both very problematic but they take quite different forms so on the left we see large scale riots arson mass shooting attempts bombings um large scale property damage attacks on police stations and and police cars uh attacks on capitalist symbols um monuments statues that kind of thing um and luxury stores and then it's mostly urban and involves attempts to 
create sort of no-go zones or liberated areas that exclude the state. On the right, it, it's different, right? We see smaller scale riots and protests, but we also see militia activity, so armed militia activity. Now, left-wing groups have armed militias also. One of the concerning things in the States right now is that both the left and the right have heavily armed militia groups that are, are present. Um, they also, but the right tend to be smaller scale in their violence, but often more lethal. So targeted assassinations, also bombings, um, vigilante defense of property rather than attacks on property. Um, and they're often uh, rural or urban fringe rather than um, urban. So it's a different pattern of violence. I'd also say the left is much better at public protest, I mean, better in a in a um, perform performance sense, at public protest and large-scale demonstrations and rioting, whereas the right is better, as in more effective at armed uh, guerrilla-style activity. So if you're worried about violence in 2024, those are some things to look at. I think the other thing that you, we need to think about is foreign interference. Um, that could be electronically, via propaganda, but also potentially it could be uh, physical, um, taking a hand in uh, the environment. So there's no clear evidence of physical interference in 2016. There's some limited evidence of uh, physical interference in 2020. But in 2024, we've got a different circumstance because we've got mass entry ongoing across the US southern border. And recent uh, reporting suggests tens of thousands of um, what are called special interest aliens, people from countries known to export terrorism or adversary nations. You know, there's recent New York Times reporting, for example, on military-aged males from China and elsewhere coming into the US. So that sort of thing could be a problem in the event of a conflict between the US and China or a deepening conflict with Russia. Um, and unless we sit back from a European or Australian standpoint and say, you know, thank God we're not America, I'd say some or all of that might also apply to European countries in the event of an escalation of conflict with, with Russia. So not a good picture, um, not one that we should be proud of, but I think um, uh, as, a, as an objective analyst, there's a lot um, to watch there that, that I think is going to be um, disturbing but fascinating in 2024. Yeah, and it and it and it ties really well into my to my next question because getting back to your article, you, one of the great thing about the ending of your article is like you kind of look into the future, right? And this is two thousand and and nineteen, and and I was I was really rereading it with with um, pleasure the other day because it was really it was it was interesting to see like you're kind of saying okay, they're likely to to feel multi-domain capabilities and utilize AI in various ways. Um, so so now five years on. Is it is is that still what you see, and and what does the future of of, of this kind of popular resistance, unconventional warfare bring? Because you you've you've kind of mentioned it in 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 terms of this particular context of the United States and and elections in all around the world, but but more generally, yeah. So I think in terms of content, and this is a problem that I often have, by the way, I often correctly predict what's going to happen but I underestimate how quickly it's going to happen. So I think I projected, you know, 10 to 15 years, we're likely to see the following things. Many of those things we've already seen a year or two after the, the article came out. So I think content generally right, but I underestimate how quickly 
um, things develop. So, yeah, we've seen a lot of multi-domain activity. You so mentioned the Ukrainian uh, USVs in the maritime domain, uh, drones in the air domain used by both um, regular and resistance forces, use of crowdsourcing for designs of weapons and crowdfunding to fund weapons and other systems. That's become uh, a real characteristic of what we've seen in Ukraine. AI has developed in a different, slightly different way <clears throat> than what I expected. Large language models like ChatGPT are being used to generate propaganda material and for communications and also to um, <clears throat> um, uh, code different uh, messages within a sort of um, overtly innocuous text. Um, we're also seeing a lot of AI tools being used for uh, collaborative engagement. We've got an observer in one location and a shooter in another, and people are communicating with each other via um, uh, an AI or, or other system. Um, use of social media, uh, mesh networking comms, um, apps like What3Words, which didn't exist when I wrote the article, or Google Earth, which obviously did, um, have become really important for precision engagement and collaborative engagement. We're also seeing what I would call virtual persistent presence, which I mentioned in the article, um, expand significantly because of that ongoing proliferation of economic uh, of, of electronic uh, connectivity. And that is good and bad for resistance movements. It's good for them because it allows them to offset their command and control. So it's not easily targetable by an adversary. They can put it in a different part of the country or in a different country altogether. Um, but the same tendency also creates what we call UTS, ubiquitous technical surveillance, whereby it's very difficult to remain covert um, and clandestine for a long period of time, which is also something that I talked about in the article. So, yeah, I think multi-domain, and again, to take a particularly horrible example, the Hamas attack on Israel on the 7th of October last year involved air, land, multiple kinds of land and sea, uh, as well as surface and subsurface manoeuvre, as well as cyber and information warfare and exploitation of that attack on social media. So a very multi-domain um, operation that Hamas conducted. So we're very much seeing this not only in Ukraine, but also in, in the Middle East and elsewhere. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. So, so we are we are getting towards the end, but but we have, have a couple of questions left. So, provide you a bit of a context. So, so you you mentioned Lawrence of Arabia, T. Lawrence, and he was the like British officer and writer who operated in in the Arab world and the in Sinai and Palestine campaign in the World War One. And in your article, you mentioned him as an example of you know the early uh, unconventional warfare. But what would he say if you were kind of looking at those kind of what what you're just talking about about the the current and future unconventional warfare. What what would he what would he say? I think he would recognize the principles um, absolutely, and I would point people to his article or his paper, twenty seven articles from nineteen seventeen. Um, he also wrote a chapter on guerrilla warfare for the nineteen eleven Encyclopedia Britannica. Sorry, the nineteen twenty something 1924 maybe Encyclopedia Britannica, which is a extraordinary um, uh, distillation of guerrilla warfare and still holds up, you know, a hundred years later. Um, so I think he would recognize the principles 
And I think the principles do translate from era to era and from conflict to conflict, but the techniques do not translate because the techniques are influenced by things that we've been talking about in terms of technology and the operating environment. So I think he would see the techniques being very different from what he did, but the principles being the same. I think he would also have some uh, cautionary words for those of us who, who work with resistance movements. And to quote from that paper, 27 articles, article 15 says, don't try to do too much with your own hands. Better they do it tolerably than you do it perfectly. It's their war. You're here to help them not to win it for them. And he also says, and I think this is the most important part, also actually under the very odd conditions of Arabia, it's talking about 1917, your practical work will not be as good as perhaps you think it is, right? So I think what he's telling us there is be humble. Don't think that we've got the answer, that we need to sort of parachute in and pat the locals on the head and tell them, hey, just shut up and sit down and we'll we'll fix your problem, that actually we need to learn uh, and we need to shut up actually and, and learn from those that are actually dealing with the, uh, the problem in the real world. And I think if you spoke to Ukrainian special operations people from the popular war, uh, from the um, uh, partisan warfare teams, they would probably agree with that because that's what they had to do when they first began to interact with these popular resistance groups. So I think there's a lot in in uh, in Lawrence that's worth looking at um, as long as we recognize that the techniques will differ because it's a hundred years later. So, so maybe you have already answered my final question. So in, in addition to your article, what should the interested listener, if they want to know more about um, unconventional warfare, what should, what should they read? So I've already mentioned two articles, the one about stolen elections as, as revolutionary triggers and the one about uh, Lawrence's article. But I would point to two books that I think people should look at. One is um, by Otto Fiala, Kirk Smith and Anders Lofberg, and it's the resistance operating concept. Uh, it's available free online from the Joint Special Operations University, and it's a comprehensive, excellent look at modern resistance warfare. Now, it was written before the Russian invasion, uh, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, but much that's in there still holds up and I think is really worth people's time to take a look. The other one, which I cannot recommend highly enough, is a book by Halit Kachansky called Resistance, the Underground War Against Hitler, 1939 to 1945. It's a long book, but it's the first book that I've ever seen that takes a synoptic overview of all of the Euro European resistance warfare movements in World War II. And it is a thoroughly excellent book, and I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, and then finally, if you want to look at a website, go on the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense National Resistance Center website, which is www.sprotiv.mod.gov.ua. And that's their center that they use for communicating with resistance groups about how to conduct resistance on, on the ground. And it's well worth uh, taking a look at. Fantastic. Thank you, uh, David Kilcullen, for being our guest on this podcast episode of SGMS, and thanks to our listeners. Thanks for having me. This podcast was brought to you by the Scandinavian Journal of Military Studies. It was produced by Jeppe Tejsgaard Jacobsen, Ravni Lohme, music 
by Jens Bjerring. SGMS is an online, open access journal publishing both high quality research and practice oriented studies relevant to the military profession. Thank you.